Are you looking for answers to life's biggest questions like, who are we? What does it mean to be a human person? What does it mean to be a Catholic in America today? How can I be a prophetic voice in our culture? The Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston now offers its MA in Faith and Culture online. This program transforms students by immersing you in the historical, cultural, and theological patrimony of the Catholic tradition so that you'll go out into the dominant American culture and leaven it with the good news. Students can audit courses, get an 18-hour certificate, or go for the entire MA program. For more information, Google Center for Faith and Culture, the University of St. Thomas. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Dr. Stuart Squires. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for Faith and Culture and Associate Professor of Theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. The Center for Faith and Culture, celebrating 25 years, brings the Catholic voice to the ongoing conversation about the meaning of life and the liberty and pursuit of happiness we hold in common as Americans. Today's episode is uh, an unusual episode. It's a special episode. It's not a standard interview episode. Uh, This is a presentation that I gave recently called How Should Catholic Vote um, to the University of St. Thomas Community. And it is a summary and an unpacking of a document from written by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops called Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. I wanted to play it here on the podcast because I think it would be helpful for many in our audience to reflect on some of the questions and the principles that the U.S. bishops offer as we come towards the end of the 2020 election cycle. Good afternoon and welcome to How Should Catholics Vote? My name is Dr. Stuart Squires. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for Faith and Culture and Associate Professor here at the University of St. Thomas. As we come to the end of this uh, seemingly endless 2020 uh, election cycle, uh, we'd like to pause before we head into the, the voting booths and to reflect on Uh, this question of how should Catholics vote? Um, What are the guiding principles? What are the guiding questions that Catholics should think about uh, before we head into the voting booth and then while we're in there as we pull the lever? Um, There's a couple of things I'd I'd just like to talk about and and tell you uh, what we're going to do today. Um, So first of all, um, I'm not here to tell you which candidate uh, to vote for. Uh, I'm not here to tell you which uh, political party to vote for. What I would like to do is to go through uh, 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 some select quotations from a document called Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship uh, that was written by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So, um, again, we're talking about how should Catholics vote, not for whom, not which particular individual or particular party. Um, And I'm not here to give you my opinion. This is not uh, uh, my own personal musings. Um, This document, um, again, written by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So if you don't know what that is, that's 
kind of what it sounds like. It's the group of U.S. bishops um, uh, here in the United States. They come together yearly and uh, for a variety of reasons, establish policies. But one of the things that they do is they um, uh, uh, write and publish texts. Um, so the, the, the main point here is that this text is not just, again, my opinion or the opinion of a random group of people who got together, but because it was written by the U.S. bishops, it has a gravity, it has a weight to it, it has an authority to it that we need to take very, very seriously. Um, now, I have, again, selected out just a few of the tech, uh, uh, choice selections from the text. My first and probably most important uh, comment to make is that I recommend that you read the entire document. You can find this document for free online. Again, it's called Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. Uh, it's been written, it was written quite a while ago, but it's been updated um, uh, several times, most recently in the fall of 2019, uh, before that in uh, 2015. So again, the, the, the document is slightly updated every few years. Um, and uh, also, uh, last sort of point of preface, um, I wore a purple tie today, not a red tie or a blue tie, just so I wasn't seeming to send any uh, sort of subliminal messages about which candidate to, to vote for. My role here today, again, not to give you my opinion, but to uh, uh, work through some of these selections, these quotations for you, explain some of the technical theological vocabulary, uh, maybe ex put it into context, uh, and just sort of draw out or unpack some of the, the meaning of each of these um, uh, each of these selections. Okay, so that's what we're going to do today and what we're not going to do. Uh, if you would go to the next slide uh, for me. Thank you very much. So the first thing uh, we see that the document tell us is vote your conscience. So let's just read through. Again, this is a, a word for word quotation uh, from the, the document itself. The church equips its members to address political and social questions by helping them to develop a well-formed conscience. Catholics have a serious and lifelong obligation to form their consciences in accord with human reason and the teaching of the church. Conscience is not something that allows us to justify doing whatever we want, nor is it a mere feeling about what we should or should not do. So that's telling us what the conscience is not, and then it goes on to tell us what it is. Rather, conscience is the voice of God resounding in the human heart, revealing the truth to us, and calling us to do what is good while shunning what is evil. It always requires serious attempts to make sound moral judgments based on the truths of our faith. And it is a judgment of reason whereby the human person recognizes the moral quality of a concrete act that he is going to perform, is in the process of performing, or has already completed. And all he says and does, man is obliged to follow faithfully what he knows to be just and right. Okay, a couple of comments to make there. First of all, uh, notice that the bishops are not jumping straight into the question of voting. What are the principles we should, we should uh, think about? It's sort of slowly going to get us to that point, but it first wants to set down some foundational principles. And the first one we see here, again, is vote your conscience. Now, that might seem obvious, and in fact, it might seem so obvious that it may not even 
uh, need comment. But I'm, uh, it is, I think, important, and I'm glad that they started this document in this way, because you may know that in the 1960 presidential election, which of course led to uh, Senator Kennedy becoming elected president, and he's the first and only Catholic to ever be uh, elected to the president, uh, there was at that time, and, and to a certain extent still to this day, a, suspicious, a suspicion about certainly Catholic politicians, but Catholics in general. Um, there was the assumption that if Senator Kennedy uh, were the president, that he would not be beholden to the American people, he would be beholden to the Pope in Rome as a Catholic, that, that any decision that he makes would ultimately be guided by the Pope. And likewise, a lot of non-Catholics uh, sometimes to this day think that Catholics just do whatever their parish priest tells them to do, that the priest uh, preaches on Sunday morning and says, vote for this candidate or vote for that candidate, uh, and that we Catholics just sort of blindly do what uh, we are told to do in the pulpit. And so I think it's important certainly for Catholics, but also for non-Catholics to understand right at the very beginning, no, 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 we vote our consciences. We do not blindly obey uh, anyone's directives. So we vote our conscience, but I also think the second point here is it's important that they tell us, well, what is the conscience and what is the conscience not? Because I think in our dominant American culture today, and that's what we in the Center for Faith and Culture are constantly thinking about, uh, how does the culture our dominant American culture, thinks similarly or differently to what we Catholics think. Uh, our conscience, uh, as defined by our culture, is, again, just doing whatever uh, 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 we feel like doing, or that our conscience is something that allows us to justify doing whatever we want to do. And we see here that um, the Catholic definition of conscience is different from that, right? It's the voice of God uh, resounding in the human heart. And... Um, we should also think about the conscience here as sort of a muscle, right? It's a muscle, and uh, like any muscle, it needs to be developed. It needs to be formed, right? So, yes, f vote your conscience, follow your conscience, but before you do that, you have to form your conscience. And that's something, again, that we often don't think about. It. Our dominant American culture doesn't talk about that. It says follow your conscience. But we rarely hear anything talking, anyone talking about forming your conscience ahead of time. So that's the, the next thing. If you'd move on to the next slide for me, please. We need to talk about the formation of the conscience, because consciences can be malformed, and so when we follow our conscience uh, when it's malformed, that leads to problems. So first we must, must form the conscience. Let's see what the U.S. bishops have to say for us here. The formation of conscience includes several elements. Number one, first, there is a desire to embrace goodness and truth. So in other words, uh, not to, again, justify doing whatever we want or sort of turn inwards and say, well, my conscience says this, and so I'm going to do it. That's a sort of inward-looking way of thinking about the conscience, where this is saying we have to desire to embrace goodness and truth. And objective truth and goodness and beauty are outside of ourselves, uh, and so we have to turn away, reorder our desires so that we're oriented uh, towards neighbor and towards God. So a desire to embrace goodness and truth, not just to, again, justify doing whatever we want. For Catholics, this begins with a willingness and openness to seek the truth and what is right by studying sacred scripture and the teaching of the church as contained in the catechism 
of the Catholic Church. So there is sort of an intellectual pursuit, an intellectual investigation, but at the same time, we shouldn't think about forming your conscience as uh, an exercise simply as the intellect, because that would say that people with a lot of degrees uh, have well-formed consciences, and people who are illiterate uh, have malformed consciences, and that's certainly not the case. Uh, it certainly is the case that there are people who are illiterate and yet have very well-formed consciences, and there are people with a lot of degrees who oftentimes have malformed consciences. So on the one hand, there is this intellectual component of immersing ourselves in the tradition while at the same time not reducing this down to an intellectual exercise. It is also important to examine the facts and background information about various choices. Finally, prayerful reflection is essential to discern the will of God. Catholics must also understand that if they fail to form their consciences in the light of the truths of the faith and the moral teachings of the church, they can make erroneous judgments. In other words, make mistakes, um, uh, either in life or in the voting, voting booth in particular. So we see here, again, the conscience is it's like a muscle uh, or, or a skill. Think of, uh, let's say you want to hit a home run in the World Series. How do you do that? Well, you can't just show up the day of the World Series. Uh, if you do that, you'll, you'll strike out in three pitches, right? You need to um, exercise, lift weights. Uh, you can't eat McDonald's in, uh, every single day. You need to eat well. You need to swing the baseball bat a thousand times every day for 20 years. And that when you show up finally in the World Series, not only can you hit a home run, but you can do it effortlessly. And that's the idea of forming the conscience. So that when you, uh, after you form the conscience, and, and we should say that the, uh, the catechism tells us that the formation of the conscience is a lifelong, ongoing process. You never finish forming your conscience. But uh, when you show up in the voting booth to vote, you can do so effortlessly, in a sense. You, you, you um, are able to discern uh, the issues at stake, the candidate's position, and then vote effortlessly. So, yes, uh, vote your conscience, um, but form your conscience first. Uh, next slide, please. Again, notice here uh, the virtue of prudence. We're still not yet talking about actual voting. The bishops are slowly walking us to the point, uh, which we'll get to in the second half of the presentation, the point about voting. So virtues are always important in any sort of action like voting. So let's read this section, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. The virtue of prudence. The church fosters well-formed consciences. Notice that repetition there of, the, of uh, insistence on the importance of a well-formed conscience. Not only by teaching moral truth, but also by encouraging its members to develop the virtue of prudence, which St. Ambrose described as the charioteer of the virtues. Prudence enables us to discern our true good in every circumstance and to choose the right means of achieving it. Again, what is truly good for us, not necessarily what we uh, think will feel good or because of a malformed conscience um, choose incorrectly, but to discern our true good. Number two, prudence shapes and informs our ability to deliberate over available alternatives. Number three, to determine what is most fitting to a specific context. And number four, to act decisively 
Exercising this virtue often requires the courage to act in defense of moral principles when making decisions about how to build a society of justice and peace. So let's talk about this a little bit. So first of all, uh, the virtue of prudence is one of uh, the four cardinal virtues, along with fortitude, justice, and temperance. Cardinal, strange word there, coming from a Latin word which simply means hinge, like the hinge of a door, right? So you have this big, huge wooden door, and that's what you see, and you don't often pay attention to the hinge on the door. But really, the hinge, in a sense, is the most important thing, because the hinge is what allows the door to to stay on the frame and to move in and out. Without the hinge, the door either won't open or it'll just fall off the frame. So it's small, the hinge is small, but it is the thing that allows the door to do what it's supposed to do. Again, this idea of the virtue of prudence uh, not something we dwell a lot about, uh, uh, thinking about, uh, but it's the thing, along with the formation of the conscience, that will allow us to vote the way that we need to vote. So a virtue, again, is a good habit, right? Not a habit in the sense of uh, I, I chew on my fingernails mindlessly, but a sort of uh, conscious with intent action that is repeated over and over again to develop this good virtue, this, this ability to, again, uh, to, to discern our true good and to form a, a, a plan to act decisively. So virtues, like the conscience, uh, must be formed, right? It's, it's, it's not, again, um, think of that, that analogy of, of athletics, that we have to form our uh, virtues just as we do our conscience, because if we don't do that well, then uh, we will not develop virtues, we will develop vices, which are uh, bad habits, right? Habits uh, that are ingrained in us and our character that um, uh, do not help us discern the true good. Are you looking for answers to life's biggest questions like, who are we? What does it mean to be a human person? What does it mean to be a Catholic in America today? How can I be a prophetic voice in our culture? The Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston now offers its MA in Faith and Culture online. This program transforms students by immersing you in the historical, cultural, and theological patrimony of the Catholic tradition so that you'll go out into the dominant American culture and leaven it with the good news. Students can audit courses, get an 18-hour certificate, or go for the entire MA program. For more information, Google Center for Faith and Culture, the University of St. Thomas. Uh, next slide, please. Intrinsically evil acts. So this is, a, this is now we're starting to get into real technical theological vocabulary that I want to help uh, uh, unpack and define for the for you. What the document is going to tell us here is that when we go into the voting booth to vote for a particular person, um, that there are certainly a million different issues that need to be considered, but there's, so to speak, a hierarchy of issues. So think of, uh, you know, taxes are always an important one, defense spending, education, uh, you know, the list of things that we uh, need to consider are endless, but what the bishops here want to tell us is that these issues that deal with intrinsically evil acts need to be at the top of our list when we consider um, uh, the, the, the different platforms of a particular individual. So, 
um, intrinsically evil acts. There are some things we must never do as individuals or as a society because they are always incompatible with love of God and neighbor. Such actions are so deeply flawed that they are always opposed to authentic good, the authentic good of persons. These are called intrinsically evil actions. They must always be rejected and opposed and must never be supported or condoned. And then it gives a list here of uh, uh, intrinsically evil acts. Abortion, euthanasia, cloning, destructive research, genocide, torture, targeting non-combatants, racism, treating workers as mere means to an end, subjecting workers to subhuman living conditions, treating the poor as disposable, redefining marriage to deny its essential meaning. So a list of specific intrinsically evil acts. Let's, let's talk about that term there, intrinsically evil. In the moral life, there are, a, you know, we do moral actions every day. Most of the time they're fairly small, but sometimes we deal with big moral questions in our lives. Oftentimes in our moral lives, uh, the actions that we do will be morally praiseworthy or morally blameworthy, depending on a variety of circumstances or intent, right? So certain actions uh, are not, uh, in their very nature, evil uh, uh, or good, but it de depends on a variety of, of context. So, for example, if I'm dancing with a woman, and while we're dancing, I step on her foot and I break her toe... The question is, well, is that a morally blameworthy action? And the answer, of course, is, well, it depends on things like my intent, right? Did, did she and I, were we in a fight earlier in the day, and I'm really angry, and I've been stewing all day, and uh, here at the end of the day, it sort of just bubbles over, and I can't stand it anymore, and I want to lash out at her, and so I step down on her toe on purpose, and I break her toe. If that's the case, if that's my intention to hurt her, then... Obviously, the answer is yes. That is morally blameworthy. But if, this, if, the, if that's not the intention, if it's simply I'm a terrible dancer and I am a terrible dancer uh, and I step on her toe and I break it, uh, she's still going to be in pain one way or the other. So in the immediate moment, uh, she probably doesn't care one way or the other. But it does matter. In that particular instance, uh, uh, is not a morally blameworthy action because I was not intending to hurt her. It just so happens that I accidentally stepped on her toe. Most moral actions, I would say, fall under that sort of category where circumstance, context, intent matter. But, and this is where we get with intrinsically evil acts, um, there are some actions that it doesn't matter what your intention is. It doesn't matter what the context. The very nature of doing the action means uh, it is evil. Context doesn't matter. Uh, intent doesn't matter. The action itself is evil. By evil, we mean, um, in the technical, theological sense, it's an action which lacks goodness, right? Philosophers and theologians speculate for thousands of years about what this means. Again, in general, we can boil it down to uh, an evil action is an action that is not oriented towards God or neighbor. Think about Jesus uh, when he was asked the most important commandment, to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? This is sort of the heart of the moral life. 
that good actions, morally praiseworthy actions, are actions which are oriented towards neighbor and towards God, whereas uh, evil actions, actions which lack goodness, are not oriented towards neighbor or towards God. It's, of course, a lot more complicated than that, but that's a good basic definition we can work off here. So again, an intrinsically evil act, an act which lacks goodness in the very nature of doing the act, irregardless of context or intention, are actions which are always evil. And I just listed uh, uh, some intrinsically evil acts here. Next slide, please. Now we're finally slowly transitioning here towards what the bishops want to tell us about voting. Making moral choices. Making moral choices. Sometimes morally flawed laws already exist. We're talking about civil laws here. Laws that are on the books. We're not talking about religious laws. In this situation, the process of framing legislation to protect life is subject to prudential judgment. There's that virtue of prudence again. And the so-called art of the possible. At times, this process may restore justice only partially or gradually. Remember, we talked already, I mentioned in passing, justice as one of the other uh, uh, cardinal virtues. Again, this is a complicated issue, but we can boil it down to a definition of justice is uh, uh, giving to the other what is owed or due to that person or a group of people or a society or a country or something, right? So um, to protect life is subject to prudential judgment and the art of the possible. At times, this process may restore justice only partially or gradually. For example, St. John Paul II taught that when a government official who fully opposes abortion cannot succeed in completely overturning a pro-abortion law, he or she may work to improve protection for unborn human life limiting the harm done by such a law and lessening its negative impact as much as possible. Such incremental improvements in the law are acceptable as steps towards the full restoration of justice. However, Catholics must never abandon the moral requirement to seek full protection for all human life from the moment of conception until natural death. So now we're, we're, we're getting into the question of what should voters expect of their elected leaders, right? Certainly, it would be great if we were to elect new leaders and the day after they are elected, they immediately overturn unjust laws. That would be great. That would be ideal. But, of course, we live in the sort of real world, and uh, the ideal world is not always possible. So this document here talking about the art of the possible. What is possible? And what we should expect of our uh, politicians is that when they are elected, that they work towards overturning any unjust laws and uh, to put us on the, the right path, so to speak, always reaching for the ideal, uh, and hopefully someday we could certainly get to a fully just uh, set of laws. In a world of original sin, that might probably never be possible. But as long as we are moving, marching on the right path towards truly just laws, then we can uh, uh, accept it when our politicians um, uh, do not give us exactly immediately everything that we want. It might, might sound like a, 
uh, a, a sort of obvious statement, but again, we're laying down the foundations, and I do think it's important that we keep this in mind as we um, uh, think about what should we expect from our politicians when they get voted, uh, voted into office. Um, our founding fathers certainly established uh, uh, within our uh, governmental system the idea of the necessity of compromise, which is um, often a dirty word today, but that, that necessity of compromise was intentionally placed in uh, the founding of our government by our founding fathers. Uh, we shouldn't think about compromise as uh, a dirty word. So we can and should compromise on particular pieces of legislation, but we should never, as it says at the end here, um, uh, abandon the moral requirement to seek full protection. We should never uh, compromise our principles, even while compromising on specific pieces of legislation. Uh, next slide, please. So now we come to um, what I think is the, the most important part of the document and the most sort of subtle uh, and nuanced part of the document. So we need to take this slowly and carefully and really understand what it's trying to tell us because if we rush through it too quickly, we can misunderstand what it's telling us. So Catholics often face difficult choices about how to vote. This is why it is so important to vote according to a well-formed conscience that perceives the proper relationship among moral goods. Notice there, once again, this repetition of the idea of a well-formed conscience. The bishops are repeating themselves not because they have nothing left to say, nothing new to say, but because they know that anytime you want to uh, uh, really hit a point home hard, you repeat yourself. So they keep coming back to this idea of a well-formed conscience. A Catholic cannot vote for a candidate who favors a policy promoting an intrinsically evil act, such as, and we saw this list already, abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, deliberately subjecting workers or the poor to subhuman living conditions, redefining marriage in ways that violate its essential meaning or racist behavior, if the voter's intent is to support that position. In such cases, a Catholic would be guilty of formal cooperation in grave evil. At the same time, a voter should not use a candidate's opposition to an intrinsic evil to justify indifference or inattentiveness to other important moral issues involving human life and dignity. All right, again, we need to uh, make sure we understand this subtle point. So what this is saying is that we as Catholic voters cannot vote for a candidate uh, who favors a uh, policy promoting an intrinsically evil act, as we just defined it, if it is our intent to support that position. So, for example, if candidate A uh, holds to a, uh, that, that cloning is good, and we already saw that cloning is an intrinsically evil act, that I as a Catholic voter cannot vote for that person if it is my intent to support that position. Notice again, that important word there is intent. That's the word that we need to be careful that we don't run right past. This gets back to what we were talking about earlier when I gave the example of dancing with a woman. If I step on her foot and I break her toe, and it's my intent to do that because I'm mad at her, then that is a morally blameworthy action. But if I just do it on accident because I'm a bad dancer, then uh, 
certainly she's in pain, but that's not a morally blameworthy action. Once again, the idea of intent is at the forefront. What is my intention as a Catholic voter? Am I intending to support candidate A's position on cloning? If the answer is yes, then again, the document tells us that we are guilty of formal cooperation in grave evil. However, if I'm voting for candidate A, not for the intention of supporting candidate A's position on cloning, but I'm doing it to support some other position, then it is acceptable to vote for candidate A. And I think this is one of the most important, if not the most important things that separate us as Catholic voters from the, 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 American, the dominant American way of thinking in our culture about voting. In our public discourse, in the larger culture today, we never hear anything about uh, intention of voter, right? It's always, do you support this particular uh, candidate's or uh, candidate's platform? And you never hear anything about intention. What is your intention? Do you intend in voting for candidate A, uh, this policy position or that policy position or both of them? What is the intention of the voter? That's the most important uh, distinction here from us as Catholic voters to the, the larger dominant American culture. Uh, next slide, please. We're still, we're still on the same theme or question here about voting for a candidate who uh, uh, does not fully embrace um, Catholic moral or social teachings, right? And, and in fact, even Catholic uh, politicians often don't. Uh, very rarely, if ever, will we have two candidates running for, uh, um, uh, for an office, and it is very clear uh, uh, for whom to vote because that person fully embodies uh, the Catholic moral and social teachings. Um, so that's why it gets more complicated. There may be times when a Catholic who rejects a candidate's unacceptable position, for example, cloning, even on policies promoting an intrinsically evil act, may reasonably to decide to vote for that candidate for other morally grave reasons. Think about that list of uh, intrinsically evil actions we talked about earlier. Voting in this way would be permissible only for truly grave moral reasons, not to advance narrow interests or partisan preferences or to ignore a fundamental moral evil. All right, what is this telling us? Let's take me as an example. I am an educator. I've spent my entire life either in school or teaching. Uh, last semester, I taught a graduate course on the uh, Catholic philosophy of education. So I am constantly thinking about education. Uh, this, is, this is my vocation. This is what is it at the heart of who I am and what I think about. What this section is telling me is, um, yes, I can vote for candidate A who supports cloning, and that I as a Catholic voter cannot do that. I can still vote for that person. However, my reason or my intention for voting for, for candidate A cannot be because that person has, in my opinion, the best education policy. What this is saying is that uh, the, the 
reason or intention that I vote for candidate A, despite candidate A's position on cloning, must deal with uh, other morally grave reasons. In other words, moral issues. Now, yes, we can certainly talk about education as a moral issue, and I certainly 100% agree with that. But when this is saying other morally grave reasons, it's referring back to those issues that we talked about earlier that deal with the dignity of the human person because we are created in the image and likeness of God. Euthanasia, abortion, etc. So those other things that we as voters think about, I'd mentioned earlier um, uh, uh, taxes, right? How, how high should our taxes be? Defense spending, um, a variety of other issues. Again, those are important issues and need to be considered. Uh, education, again, being one of those. But it's those issues that deal with the dignity of the human person, those, those fundamentally moral questions. Again, education is a moral question, but it's not a fundamentally moral question. So if I vote for candidate A, despite the fact that candidate A believes in cloning, and I'm voting not in my intent to support that, the other reason must be a moral reason, a, a fundamentally or centrally a moral reason. Next slide, please. What if all candidates support intrinsically evil policies? I mentioned a moment ago, uh, it's, it's, it's very likely um, that, that all candidates in any uh, election cycle do not perfectly match with Catholic moral and social teachings. What do we do? What do we do in that case? Well, let's see what the bishops have for us. When all candidates hold a position that promotes an intrinsically evil act, the conscientious voter faces a dilemma. The voter may decide to take the extraordinary step of not voting for any candidate, or after careful deliberation, may decide to vote for the candidate deemed less likely to advance such a morally flawed position and more likely to pursue other authentic human goods. All right, a couple of uh, points to talk about there. First of all, it says you may choose if you're well-formed conscience dictates not to vote at all for a particular, in a particular, uh, um, for, for one candidate or another. Now, notice it says an extraordinary step. This is not giving us the sort of excuse to be lazy voters or if it's raining out on the day of the election to say, well, uh, you know, use this as an excuse. I don't like, really, really like either of the two candidates, uh, so I'm just not going to vote. Um, Again, that must be an extraordinary step, a rare step, a step that uh, we, we take with great deliberation. And, and we also need to keep in mind that this document, again, was written by U.S. bishops. This was not written, for example, by bishops in, in the Vatican. Um, so the U.S. bishops, they know uh, their history, our history as Americans, uh, how many you know, uh, times throughout our history people have died, um, for the right to vote. Um, we, we know our history in this. And so the bishops are not taking this lightly. They're not um, uh, um, uh, suggesting that we do this unless it's an extraordinary step. Uh, second point in this slide to, to, to uh, pay attention to is this idea of voting for a candidate deemed less likely to advance such a morally flawed position. In other words, when we consider two candidates, it's not simply 
does candidate A hold position like cloning and candidate B not hold that position? Uh, it's unfortunately more complicated than that. So let's say, again, candidate A uh, supports cloning, which we saw as an intrinsically evil act. Um, it's, the, we as voters cannot simply consider whether he or she uh, believes in cloning, but rather uh, how likely is it that candidate A, if elected, is going to advance that position? So for example, maybe candidate A believes human cloning is a good thing, but never talks about that on the campaign trail. It's not in any of the candidate's commercials, doesn't talk about it in the debates. It's so far down on the sort of totem pole of initiatives that candidate A has that it's not even that serious of an issue. And we can expect that candidate A is not going to be uh, pushing hard to get a new law in uh, 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 through Congress uh, advocating for cloning. So again, it's not simply a question, does the candidate support or not support a, a, an intrinsically evil act? It's uh, on the list of sort of the hierarchy of interests that the candidate has. Does the candidate really want to get a new law passed dealing with this intrinsically evil action or not? That has to play into our thinking as voters when we go into the voting booth. Next slide, please. And this is our last slide. In the end. In making these decisions, it is essential for Catholics to be guided by, there it is once again, a well-formed conscience that recognizes that all issues do not carry the same moral weight, right? I can't just choose uh, to focus on education even though I'm an educator. Some issues have a moral gravity than others, and we've talked about what those issues are do not carry the same moral weight, and that the moral obligation to oppose policies promoting intrinsically evil acts has a special claim on our consciences and our actions. These decisions should take into account a candidate's commitments. Again, how serious, how, how high on the list of priorities is uh, a particular uh, intrinsically evil act for a can uh, candidate? A candidate's commitments, his or her character, integrity, and ability to influence a given issue. In the end, this is a decision to be made by each Catholic guided by a conscience formed by Catholic moral teaching. This entire conversation, we've been talking about issues, policy platforms. I want to note here at the end that the bishops are also bringing in the idea of character, and integrity. The primary focus was on policies, platforms, but this is telling us we cannot ignore the question of character and integrity, that that also plays into, must play into our thinking as we vote. So you can see, once again, it's getting even more complicated. Finally, as Catholics, we are not single-issue voters. A candidate's position on a single issue is not sufficient to guarantee a voter's support. That one issue can be any issue. Again, I, as an educator, might want to say, I only care about education. 
and I'm going to look at the two candidates on what their positions on education is and vote accordingly, and there I've done my job. Or oftentimes it's a question of abortion. Some Catholics say, well, this is the one issue that matters, and I'm going to look at the two candidates and see what the two candidates think about or promote in terms of abortion, and I'm going to vote on that one issue. Uh, uh, Again, the bishops are saying we are not single-issue voters. Life is complicated, politics is complicated, voting is complicated, and we cannot simply look at one issue, no matter what that one issue is, including abortion, and say, that's the one issue I'm going to vote for. We have to take in a variety of issues, moral issues in particular, dealing with the dignity of the human person, and rank them, and at the top, are those moral issues, which do include, does include uh, abortion. But again, abortion within the context of those uh, other intrinsically evil actions. We can't just pick one issue. So character is important, integrity is important, and we are not single-issue voters. Um, I hope here at the end, on the one hand, uh, this helps to clarify for you. On the other hand, and this may sound like a weird thing to say, I hope uh, it doesn't feel easier to vote. Because again, voting is not easy. Uh, the bishops are not trying to make it easy for us. What they're trying to do is clarify, right? Clarifying is not the same thing as making it easy. And so uh, I think um, the bishops here are offering us a good start, a good document that, again, will help clarify in our minds what we should think about, even if they're not trying to um, make it easier on us to just walk in and automatically pick one candidate over the other. So I hope, this I hope that this clarifies for you. Uh, again, my final comment is one of the first comments I made, which is I highly recommend that you read the entire document. What I've given you here today is just some choice selections. You can find the document in its entirety online. It's not that long. You could finish it in an hour or two. Again, it's called Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. I thank you for your time, and good luck in the voting booth. Are you looking for answers to life's biggest questions like, who are we? What does it mean to be a human person? What does it mean to be a Catholic in America today? How can I be a prophetic voice in our culture? The Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston now offers its MA in Faith and Culture online. This program transforms students by immersing you in the historical, cultural, and theological patrimony of the Catholic tradition so that you'll go out into the dominant American culture and leaven it with the good news. Students can audit courses, get an 18-hour certificate, or go for the entire MA program. For more information, Google Center for Faith and Culture, University of St. Thomas.